Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is Nika Sul Smith for a discussion about the oldest among the United States, the elders of the Trask 250, from Sago and Fatima, Randall and Esther, to Musa and Katie. Learn the ancestral story of the Trask 250 from the vantage point of the oldest traceable ancestors who unite them, those who were born in the late 18th century, mostly in Africa, with descendants who number more than 5,000. Nika Smith is a professional photographer, speaker, host, consultant, and documentarian with more than 20 years of experience as a genealogist. She has extensive research experience in African ancestor genealogy and reverse genealogy and is expert in genealogical research in the northeastern Louisiana area and researching enslaved communities. Nika is the host of Black Progen Live, an innovative web show with more than 125 episodes focused on people of color genealogy and family history. So let me give a warm welcome to Nika Soul Smith to the show today. Welcome, Nika. Thank you. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Nika, I am really looking forward to hearing more about this research. So let's start at your beginning. So who are the Trask, and what motivated you to search for them? Yeah, so the Trask 250 are a group of enslaved people between, really between, gosh, um, primarily two states, Louisiana and Mississippi, really along the Mississippi River and really in the Mississippi Delta area, although there are ties to states outside of that area like North Carolina um, and potentially Virginia. And this enslaved population um, really lived together almost really undisturbed for more than 30 years where, you know, up to this day I have yet to find a transaction where any one of them were sold off. And when you have 
a situation like that, that means that all of these people are together in community, and it, it really is like a sort of like a town, and so naturally their descendants begin to intermarry. And so, um, you know, the 250, you know, that, that's the, the, that number represents the base generations, right, the, the, those that were enslaved prior to 1865 and those that were enslaved not only, you know, that lived to see freedom, but those that did not live to see freedom. And so I really pretty much base my research and, you know, how I find descendants based on that base generation. And we're talking about in Louisiana, you know, enslaved populations that lived in Concordia Parish, which is on the Mississippi Delta. And if you go directly east to um, Natchez in Adams County at one point, um, as well as in Woodville or Wilkinson County, Mississippi. And if you go just south of Woodville or Wilkinson County into Point Coupe Parish, Louisiana, then there's also spilling over into the neighboring parishes. And then when you start dealing with, you know, um, those, you know, the more recent generations of slaveholders within the Trask family, though their operations spilled out into like Iberville Parish and the Felicianas and, um, and, and all of that other stuff. And then, of course, you know, when you have the Great Migration, the descendants of those people spread further out. So we're kind of all over the place. But, but home base primarily, especially if you're trying to see if you have a connection to it, is really primarily Concordia Parish, Louisiana, Wilkinson County, Mississippi, Adams County, Mississippi, and Point Coupe Parish in Louisiana. Okay, but you're saying, I mean, the name, the Trask. What, what should we know about the Trask? So who are Trask, they? Uh, yeah, who are they? Well, the, the Trask family are really the origin slaveholders for this group of people. The, you know, and, and that is who, who was, was the enslaver for the longest period of time. Now when you go to the areas that I just mentioned, you will hear people refer to the land and the enslaving family being the Ventresses. But the Ventresses mm-hmm. did not become the slaveholders until after the Trask slaveholder, who was named James Lawrence Trask, passed away. And then at, upon his death, because he had no biological children, the enslaved then were bequeathed to his niece, who was Charlotte Pinchon Ventress. She was a Ventress by marriage. And then his, his nephew, Augustus Trask Welch. They were both children through his sisters. And so um, that's where the name Trask gets folded in. But it's not just Trask. That's the primary name. Again, you just heard me mention Welch. You heard me mention Ventress. The Carter family, who was one of the Seminole families in the Natchez area prior to statehood for the state of, of Mississippi and even Louisiana, that family's involved in this. You also have um, uh, the Stewarts. I mean, there's so much intermarriage. Um, Poindexters. Uh, I mean, you could just, you literally can look at a who's who of the Mississippi um, Seminole families, and they will have touched or interacted at least with, the, with, the, with this particular family group. Well, now, when I started this program, I mentioned several first names, Sago, Fatima, Randall, and Esther, and Musa, and Katie. So how did you uncover the names of those particular elders and tell us about them? Sure. So with those particular elders, the way that I was able to identify them was using traditional genealogy. And, you know, the lion's share of those folks that I named did not live to see freedom. So there, you know, there is no magic, 
oh, uh, you know, I put the name in and it just came out. No, there was a lot of kind of chiseling and time that was spent there. And so what did I do? I used, you know, the, the traditional things like, um, you know, the census records for their children and then going and gathering slave lists, you know, from uh, different repositories like the Mississippi Department of Archives and History or, you know, getting slave lists from Harvard University or even letters from the slaveholding family that are at Amherst College. And when I combined those together along with research that I did on deeds and conveyances in the respective counties and parishes where these, this family lived, what you have is, you know, um, you start to have sort of like a, a census, right? So the slave list will identify people who are connected based on, you know, groupings, right? And you can make assumptions around families regarding that. But then um, beyond that, you've got to use records like mortgages, which in this case, because the slaveholding family, you know, borrowed so much money against this enslaved population, you would see a mortgage taken out where they were used as the collateral pretty much yearly, so that it ended up being about 50 different transactions. There's actually more than that where all the family groups are listed, you know, together, man, woman's name, mix of male and female names, and then that sort of thing, you know, repeating. And so you just keep using those mortgages and what I will call um, in some instances an enslaved census, and you keep going back and back and back and back and back until you get to those early couples. The reason why I was very intent on tracing them and finding their voice was because a lot of times when researching the enslaved, we rarely hear from them and we rarely hear their voices. And for my purposes as well, I knew that if I knew who they were and who their children were, my DNA matches for this particular population would make more sense. So that when I was looking at shared matches between me and another person, I could say, oh, okay, um, I know this person connects to me through Sego and Fatima. All right, which one of their children? Okay, this, this other cousin is in common. All right, so then I know it has to be that particular uh, one of their children who was the source of the connection. And so, you know, these, these, these people, they were born, you know, largely before the founding of the United States. We're not talking about folks that were born in the 1840s or 50s. These are people born in the 1770s, 1760s, who, you know, despite the transatlantic slave trade or even potentially customs in the area, some of them were able to re retain their, their African names, like Musa, or Sego or Fatima. Um, and so, you know, it, it becomes this story of here are the elders and, you know, here are our mainstays, here are the people that we all descend from. And then now, you know, several of us, I mean, I would say the large, the large you know, scale, <laughs> many of us are connected to more than one of the earliest couples. And until you go into the weeds of the, the transactions and the slave lists and the, and the personal papers and all of that, all of the things that are outside the realm of a census or vital records, because we don't have that for this time span. We're talking pre-1865, you know, slavery era research. And so with that, you've got you've to gotta use all those documents to get back to those people to find their voices. And so um, that, really, that really has always been my focus is to find their voice. And I have found it in a number of ways, you know, where, where they're quoted by the slaveholding family. You know, Sago was quoted by Israel Trask. He was, he was in um, Woodville um, visiting, and, you know, this is after he had divested his interest in um, the enslaved population and the plantation operations. And he was writing to his sons, and he said that Sago asked about them. 
and when he was going to bring them down there. And it's rare, especially when you're doing slavery era research, that you're going to find the voice of the enslaved actually quoted. It is very rare that you'll actually find that. Wow. I can imagine how it felt just to read, you know, Sago inquiring about other family members and having it actually put in a document so that you could hear his voice. Well, I want to take you back for a minute because you mentioned three different places where you conducted your search. You mentioned the Mississippi State Archives, Harvard, and Amherst. So let's start with where did you go first? I went to the Mississippi Archives first, and, of course, that's because it's the proximity. You know, that's, that's the closest repository to me. And I learned of the Trash Ventures papers, of course, um, thank, thankfully, due to these, you know, the brilliant staff at the archives, the Mississippi State Archives, who put together an incredible, um, you know, catalog record of everything. You know, I mean, it, it's so detailed of the amount of records that, you know, are, are in the collection, you know, really tersing down, like, here where the slave was are, like, go to this folder. And, you know, if you want to find letters between this person and that person, go to this folder. You know, so that helped me be um, very efficient to be able to go through that and be able to pull things out. Of course, this is, this is pre, you know, the time we're living in now. And then um, following that, the next place I went was to Amherst College, um, their archives and manuscripts, um, you know, department who were super incredible and allowed me to access, you know, some of the letters, um, you know, that I had interest in, you know, as a result of looking at, again, their, you know, manuscripts, you know, their, their write-up on the collection. I was able to pull those records remotely. And then, you know, in 2019, I actually was able to go to Amherst and actually, you know, touch the letters and take photos and do all that kind of stuff there. Their staff has been incredible um, helping me with that. And then with Harvard, it was a remote request as well, using their system, you know, to make requests to get digital copies of um, the original materials, and then they just would deliver those electronically to me, and then I could download them and then use them for my purposes. So, you know, it, it all, all of those repositories worked in tandem with, you know, doing the census research to get back, you know, to the current descendants and then going back to trace them, who's living in the neighborhood, who's living around each other. I mean, this community still is, is intertwined, even in, in satellite locations like New Orleans, or even Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, and so, um, you know, so that, that, I would say that, and then along with family search, having access to, you know, the deed records and um, conveyance records, whether at a local family history center or at my home where I could mine through that information and, you know, you can just do it at home versus having to be in a particular location to get to it. So back to Amherst. So you you went there, but prior to going there, are you saying you found something online that would let you know it was to your advantage to actually go to Amherst to the manuscript department? Kind of help us understand how you ended up there. Right. This is where you got to really broaden your horizons when it comes to your search. You need to go where the information is, regardless of where it is. And so I, I say that to say, I think people neglect just a regular Google search. So 
sometimes to get to information, right? And and this is the this is the beauty of having um, an archives and manuscripts collection or just a library that keeps you know um, archival materials. Where you know I was searching and I found that that you know one of the slaveholding family their papers were at Amherst College and then I discovered that that individual Israel Trask who was the brother of James Trask I mentioned earlier he was a trustee or a founder of Amherst College and so that's why part of his papers ended up there and then the other part of his papers ended up at Harvard University and I wouldn't have known that had I not just searched you know just for him, you know, put in Massachusetts, put in Mississippi along with his name. Okay, are there any personal papers anywhere else outside of, you know, the Mississippi State Archives? And so that, that's how I came across his connection to Amherst. And, um, you know, for the other side of my family that I do research on, I was already familiar with the college because one of my cousins was the first black professor there. I already knew about the school. I knew exactly where it was. I had I had been up there before. I just didn't know my connection to it, you know, via via this route. So, yeah, it was it was a it was a simple Google search, and then once I, you know, looked at the description, you know, the description of the collection, you know, uh, the letters, you know, the dates, who the who the person who wrote the letter was, and who the recipient was. I then contacted the archive staff to ask how I could get digital copies of those, uh, those letters, and they were more than helpful um, with providing me access to that stuff. So were these letters already transcribed, or because you're talking original, you were actually reading them in their original form without transcription? Yes. So um, they're, most of them, they, they um, well, actually, but it's kind of a yes and. Um, the person who donated the letters did a typewritten transcript, so that that was a great that's a great help because you know they're reading through, but you still want to read the originals yourself because what if something was mistranscribed or maybe they misinterpreted something, and so um, you know again this is where you have to constantly keep old handwriting before you so that you can you know you can have a good chance of trying to figure out you know, what was being said is maybe there's a word or something you can't you can't figure out. But yeah, there there is a typewritten transcript, but that's not always the case with a lot of these materials. A lot of times, you know, the archivists and the staff are just processing this stuff just to get it out and available to the public, whether in person or whether remotely. And so, um, you know, so you will, you know, I would say nine times out of ten, you will have to transcribe them yourself. And there's more to me, I think there's a, there's a bigger value in doing that than just going having to go back to an image every single time trying to figure out which letter was it that they said X Y Z. You know, and that's that's, a, that's also another part of my process with this is you know you've got to extract the data from the image. We really don't have you know you know systems that are intuitive that we can use to do this. So I just use a spreadsheet. You know, so I'm not having to go back over and over and over again looking through, you know, four or five images to find out exactly where someone's name is. I've extracted it out and put it into a spreadsheet, and then, you know, I just go through the, sp the spreadsheet, do a find, and then I can get to the names much more quickly and efficiently. Wow. It sounds like an arduous process, but it has certainly yielded for you some very positive outcomes. So I want to go back to the couples now. So what role has DNA played 
in your research journey and connecting the couples to, let's say, present-day descendants? That is really what started all of this, is my curiosity for how, you know, me and my known family would have shared DNA with these folks that were not from the locations I was familiar with. And, and I think more often than not, as researchers, we know this. We know this has got to be something that, that was as a result of slavery, but we don't know how to, how to verify that or how to, how to make it, you know, how to, how to say if it's true or if it isn't. And so that's really where I allowed, you know, the, the research that I did on, 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 you know, other descendants' families or, or DNA cousins' families to, to really take the lead. And so, you know, that, that's, what, that's, what really, that's, what, that's what sold the seed for this is the fact that we were connected by DNA and I was trying to figure out how. And so um, with that, you know, these folks like Sego and Fatima are, are my fifth-grade grandparents. And the fact that I still have remnants of their DNA even now and that, you know, I can go in and look at my matches and, you know, even with a refresh, you know, with new people coming in, I'll see, mm-hmm. you know, the us- what I call the usual suspects. <laughs> you know, it's like, there she is, there he is, you know, it'll be a list of people, and it won't even necessarily have to be, um, you know, several scrolls on the page. It, it could literally be, you know, eight, eight Cinemorgans, ten Cinemorgans, and I'll have 20 people that are connected to that eight Cinemorgan or that ten Cinemorgan, or sometimes it's as high as 100, you know, because it's a more close relation. And so, um, right. you know, again, you know, it, it may not necessarily be that, that and I haven't found that a lot of the earliest couples themselves were related, but their descendants intermarried, and then now we're all tied together because because of that. Well, you know, when you talk about, I mean, all these ties and all these connections, and you know, you and I have even talked about seeing some of the same people in our match list. I mean, this is just so mind-boggling, just to think of. These six, no, it's three couples, and the descendants of these three couples and some of the descendants married each other. Wow. So you got double cousins and triple cousins showing up in your DNA. But you now have over. I was just going to ask you about the number because (laughs) while you call it the Trans 250, you have over 5,000 plus names, and tell us about those names. Where are you getting all of those names from? Right. Well, and that's the thing. The three couples we named, those are just three of the couples. There's more. There's actually more like ten early couples. Mm -hmm. And everyone has different concentrations, you know. And so while Sago and Fatima may have the largest number of descendants, that doesn't necessarily mean that I trace. That doesn't mean that they have, you know what I mean, like they're the top, right? It just could be, you know, um, with some of the others, they may not, their families may not have DNA tested or, you know, um, we might have a daughter who had a daughter had a daughter, you know what I mean, where the names change mm-hmm. and may not be altogether clear. Um, but with the finding the names, I mean, really, Doing the work with the early generation is what helps me speed the process along and add more people much more quickly. So, you know, because I've figured out those relationships and I automatically know, okay, if, if I'm in common, this other cousin is in common, and this other cousin is in common, okay, this new DNA match, even though they do not have a tree, I can see, okay, because they have the three of us known folks and verify folks together, I know they descend 
from this particular couple, right, let's say they come from Sabo and Fatima, all right, if they have ties to Point Pay Parish, I automatically know that that has to come from Sabo and Fatima's son, uh, Moody, or, um, or it has to come from um, really pretty much that and his daughter Flora, uh, yeah, his daughter Flora and then his daughter Martha. And then if I see Kristoff or anything like that, if somebody's got a username with one of my Hallmark names, I automatically know how they fit in. Like that's how quick it is. And, and really because our family and our community are very, very good about obituaries in the newspaper in New Orleans and Baton Rouge, and those things are so important because they list out all of the family connections and it lets me know, okay, this is the right John Kristoff or this is the right Elsie Kristoff or this is the right, you know, um, Kadar um, for surname or, you know, the right uh, uh, Dunbar or the right any of those names because I've already done, right, the research. I'm finding the program that maybe lists the DNA match, and then I'm going back, okay, you know, their parents were born before the 1940 census, and then, of course, I'm doing census research, going back every 10 years, pulling vital records like death records, you know, marriage records, connecting those ties, because a lot of times that will tell me that, you know, even descendants in this day and age are still intermarried. <laughs> so then that way I'm like, all right, well, that ties two branches together because that's a Dunbar and that's a Palmer or that's a Kadar and that's a Kristoff. All right, so let me see who, you know, where do the trees converge more than one, more than one way. But for me primarily right now, it, it's those obituaries. I think I joked with you earlier on that if I find one obituary, typically that means that I'm adding another 100 people. Just yes, you, one, I remember you saying that, yes. Right, right. So where do you see this this project going, if if project is the appropriate word for what you have been doing? I really, I think for me it's about the descendants first and giving them the ability to know and recognize that you can trace our families back this far. I think that's one of the most common misconceptions that a lot of people have. You know, I see it on social media all the time. Well, there's no, there's no records for us. They don't name us, all that, you know, it's a waste of time. And that's not true because for this branch of my family, I started with nothing, nothing. When I mean nothing, I'm talking no living grandparent. My father is deceased. My only aunt is dead. I didn't have a family Bible, literally all these records. I had to go out and find them myself. And so, um, you know, primarily my concern or, you know, my focus is on the descendants and getting them this information. And then beyond that, it's to really share sort of the methodology around this community to unearth, you know, untold stories and storylines, especially, you know, when you start looking at, you know, northern involvement with slavery and and, um, the profit from slavery and how even though, folks in the North may not have been the actual slaveholders, or maybe at one point they were, they were still profiting off of the institution and that it was a system. What this story shares is that slavery was a system and it was national, and we can't make it about just the Deep South. The whole country was in on this this operation, you know. And from there, I also want to encourage other people because you don't necessarily have to have 250 enslaved people. It could be a smaller population but through you being tenacious and really digging into the records and really digging into the DNA, you can unearth stories that are just like this. There are so many that are there, but people feel like you've got to be a Georgetown or you've got to be a UVA 
for you to be given permission to, to document this stuff. I didn't have to ask Amherst College or Harvard or Ole Miss if I could do this. I'm a descendant. This is my history. This is our history. And I can name it and I can claim it and I can share it exactly how I want to. And we all should be empowered to do the exact same thing. And, and I really wanted it to have a name so that when people started to search for information on it, it would no longer sort of be this thing that was hidden in the description, you know, written by, by the archives and manuscripts department, that they could see that, that these enslaved people, you know, weren't just a footnote, you know, on one of those descriptions, but that they're actual descendants that are actually alive who are tied to this beyond the slaveholding family. Right, and you're actually, I mean, you're you're at the point where you're saying, listen, let's let's look at our community genealogy. If you're talking about people from Concordia, and you've noticed this 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 cluster of folks from Concordia, that right there started you on a good process. Also, you mentioned Wilkinson County. How many people? of Wilkinson County have even thought to go as far as you have gone because you started with the trust but then realized that Ventress was important. That name was important. And so you also mentioned other places, though, other than Concordia and also in, in addition to Wilkinson. What are some of the other places that you have picked up some pockets of descendants that are connecting to these original uh, enslavers? I would say, I mean, pretty much um, it, it all depends on time period. So, like, right now, okay. you know, we're talking living living people, right? Um, you know, there's a big mm-hmm. pocket of folks in Chicago, um, which makes sense when you look at the Great Migration. Um, even pockets of people out in the Bay Area in California, even in L.A., um, and then beyond that, like, so many people still live <laughs> in the area. It's crazy. Like, it just blows my mind. Um, and, and even if they moved out of Concordia Parish or they moved out of Point Coupe or they moved out of, uh, of Wilkinson County, they just go to Baton Rouge or they just go to New Orleans, mm-hmm. right? Like we, mm-hmm. And then we all end up orbiting, orbiting each other again. It's so weird. Right. Um, I mean, and, and not, right? Um, so, yeah, so there's some spillover. Um, some of the folks left and went to, like, Madison Parish, uh, Louisiana, even East Carroll, which is my mom's side. There are people that went there. You have folks that are in, are in Indianola, um, in Mississippi. Um, you have folks that, um, you know, even spilled over into maybe Amit, you know, Amit County, um, Mississippi, or um, even into Jefferson County, Mississippi, where Fayette is, or even went back to Natchez, um, because the initial, you know, the initial, the oldest enslaved, which includes Sago and Fatima and Musa and Katie, they all were in Natchez initially. And then they, they you know, once Israel's father-in-law died and that property was sold off, then everyone was shifted down to Wilkinson County. But there's always been a shifting back to Natchez. And, of course, because Natchez is just across the river from, from Concordia Parish, the folks that were in Concordia Parish, we would go back and forth to Natchez. So it's mm-hmm. really primarily those locations as well as, again, as I mentioned, um, East and West Feliciana, um, East and West Baton Rouge, Iberville Parish, 
um, primary, even the little uh, Rapide Parish, too, um, just really looking Delta. You're really looking like Mississippi Delta for the most part. So finally, I mean, I'm getting close to the end, but I do want to know how are you disseminating the information about your research? So as you mentioned, you want to focus on the descendants. So the descendants really understand uh, what this whole research process has yielded and the value of this process to them. Right, right. So outside of, you know, um, literally just messaging people, you know, through, you know, the various DNA sites like Ancestry and 23andMe, I also will, um, you know, I do presentations on this where, you know, I really share, like, from start to finish, like, what I started with, which was basically nothing, and then leading people through the process of how I made the discoveries, you know, really hands-on, like, okay, this is what the DNA matches look like, how, here's how you decipher between this being this or that being that, and then, um, you know, beyond that, um, you know, presenting to, you know, to different groups. Um, you know, I even share a lot of this research at Maggie um, because, you know, again, I want folks to know that you don't have to sit back and wait for a quote-unquote book of life for someone to do this for you. You have the skills and the will and the resources and the know-how to do this yourself. You don't have to wait for permission. You don't have to ask for permission. The information is there. And if it's not, you know, that's when we advocate for ourselves to, to knock down any walls or any barriers to get to it. So, um, you know, I mean, I, but beyond that, um, periodically I will publish a list on my on my website of the latest, you know, names. And I had actually, I had, there was a big, you know, it wasn't even really that much time in between um, when I posted the list of 3,000 names connected to now it's over 5,400. And it didn't take long. Again, remember I told you, you know, one obituary is 100 people. <laughs> you know, right. people, people were fertile. Um, and still very fertile, and we will never die out. I am convinced of that. But, um, yeah, so it's pretty much a list. You know, I've written up, you know, several different, you know, um, blog posts and accounts on different aspects of the story. You know, one in particular that a lot of people find interesting is the fact that, you know, in the slaveholding family, you know, one of the, one of the, the second generation married into an abolitionist family, and while she was married to this man, I mean, she died – died, you know, his wife, she was profiting off of the institution of slavery because her, her uncle owed her father so much money until when her father died, he was, you know, he was on the hook to pay her, pay the estate. So she's, you know, I mean, you think about it. The, one of the other things that I point out is when you look at that, that slaveholder, you know, uh, estate in the north, it says his brother owed him $130,000. It doesn't say what for. That was the equivalent of more than $3 million at the time. But it was for a plantation and enslaved people. It was for an operation. So, you know, there's so many different things. Um, even James Ventress, you know, claiming that he didn't align with the, you know, the Confederacy. And he was a, actually a, <laughs> he, was, he was an officer in the Confederate Army. You know, him and his um, request for a pardon, you know, in order for him to get reenfranchised as a voter and, you know, that whole story. I mean, there's, there's so many different, so many different aspects of this. It's just, it goes very, very, very deep. Well, with it going very, very deep, have you had any connections to the descendants of the slaveholders? No, 
Um, I have not found – oh, I have found them. I just – I haven't reached out yet because I – I I want to be prepared for that because this this story is not one where it it's just there's a lot of nuance to it and so you know for every you know letter that I find where you know James Trask is talking about getting rid of an overseer because he's too harsh or too that he doesn't like the way that he's treating the enslaved there is a oh, well, you know what, I divested my interest out of the plantations, but I'm going to open a cotton textile mill, you know? And so it's like you've you got to be able to be at a very mature to have even have dialogue about this. And I sure. know that for a lot of, even for descendants, it's a lot to process. So, you know, mm-hmm. of the enslaved, descendants of the enslaved, so I would have to imagine that it's going to be the same way, you know, for, for descendants of the enslaved family. And here's the other piece, that the Trash 250 descendants, are descendants of the enslaving family. So, yes, I have been in contact with them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. They, they are both enslaved descendants and former slaveholding family descendants. Um, but just people who are just in the, in the box of just slaveholding family descendants, no, I haven't been in contact with them yet. And, again, um, you know, when I do, it's got to be in a format in which, you know, whoever the person is who is engaging can understand and process nuance and is willing to know and learn and, and take the steps needed to be involved because I don't want to expose the descendants to someone who is going to just cause harm or more trauma mm-hmm. than we already have. Sure, sure. Well, we're close to the end. So do you have any parting words, uh, words of wisdom (laughs) to share with us? For me, I feel like a lot of genealogy, uh, people are are getting personal gratification from it. We all should, but I feel like there's an aspect of it that really is supposed to be community-based. And whereas, you know, me and you have the skills to research this information and get it and distill it in a particular type of way, not everyone in our family, not everyone in our communities have the ability to do that. That is, that to me, that is a, that's a gift, and that's something that we should not only be using for our families but for other folks. I could have easily said, you know what, I, this is my research. I don't have to share it with anybody. Oh, well, if you want to learn, I'm not going to give you access to my tree. I'm not going to put out a list, right? People are very restrictive like that. And in the time and space that we're in, especially with regarding what's going on with us historically, you know, the the history that we're living with on a day-to-day basis, when we restrict what we what what people can learn, that that that's just not that's just not positive. And so the more opportunities people have to learn about their ancestors' place, their, you know, direct lineage's place in American history, the better it is for us to be able to understand ourselves and understand, you know, other people. And so, you know, I would, I would seriously admonish folks who, you know, are thinking or have scenarios like I do where you've got folks who are living in three locations that are neighboring. You can't figure out how they're related. And, you know, on, on the onset, you may think this is going to be too much work. I don't want to be. No. Think about those young people. Think about those folks who are in their DNA matches. And you know how you all connect. You connect through slavery. You have the information, but you're willingly choosing not to share it with them. 
how are you any different than a slaveholder's descendant who withholds information that's sitting in an attic or a Bible? We have to really critically start thinking about that stuff in this particular way. There is no difference. So don't feel like you have to have this grand academia stamp put on whatever you're doing. You are breaking historical narratives free that have been under the surface for so long by choosing to be benevolent and to engage folks and to educate people around who your ancestors were, especially the story of enslaved people, and not making it about a blank line. This gives them a name, a gender identity, you know, an age, a family structure, a community structure, so that when you start to look through those census records and you're seeing all these people on the same page and you're like, oh, they're just neighbors, and you're finding out, no, they're not. They were all enslaved together. So I just really want to encourage folks to really be confident in taking agency over ancestral stories and these community stories because this is one of thousands, if not millions. You are so right, and I want to thank you for your your words of wisdom because we do have almost an obligation to pass it on, to share it, and to engage people beyond the hashtag, this is your ancestor. If you know more, share more. So I want to thank you, Nika, for for joining me today, and thank everyone else for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. And remember, your ancestors left footprints as evidenced by the information Nika shared with us today. So I look forward to everyone joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye, Nika. See you later, Bernice. Okay, bye-bye.